Hello, and welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. This is episode 11 of Piecing It All Together, P-E-A-C-I-N-G. I actually had a friend who said, hey, I know you have a new podcast out, but I can't find it, and he wasn't spelling it our uh, creative way. Oh. Yeah. So once I typed it in, I said, give me your phone. And once I typed it in, it came right up. So you got to make sure it's the P-E-A. Yeah, I think that's, uh, is that is that what's called a double entendre? <laughs> I don't know if that would qualify, but uh, it definitely is a play on words. But hopefully as uh, people share and, uh, and uh, we get new eyes and new ears, people will pick up on the theme there and it'll make more sense. Yeah. And uh, so we appreciate all the the likes and the shares and the comments that we've been getting. We're really enjoying uh, the feedback. And a few and, reviews. Yeah. So thank you for that. And uh, we will let you know at the end how you can continue to support us. But uh, we have been traveling. So I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about our travels. You have been to both Canada and New Mexico. And I, yeah. and I was in Montana. But I just wanted to ask you how... How have those travels been? Have you uh, any any observations, any interesting experiences? Well, a lot. Um, in my time in Canada, I was teaching at Vancouver School of Theology in the Indigenous Studies program. And um, I was watching, I was uh, keenly, to use a Canadian word, uh, interested in how uh, the indigenous people are viewed in Canada and seen. Uh, and I've been there before, and I have Canadian friends who are indigenous, but... But um, I, I saw more this time. I kind of pulled back the curtain and saw a little more this time than I had in the past. I, and I, I talked to my friend, uh, Ray Aldred, who's in the director of the Native Studies program there. And, and um, I was teaching a course, and the course was called, I can't remember the name, but it's something like um, Reimagining uh, Faith and Theology Through an Indigenous Worldview. And uh, it was a great class, a wonderful time. It was good. In the, in the middle of the class, one of the Hawaiian brothers stopped the class and said, I get it now. And I said, what's that? And he goes, now I understand why our denominational officials don't want us to come to this place because they don't want us to hear the stuff you're saying. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a great compliment. Wow. So, um, but, but the indigenous people uh, up there, they're, they're about 12% of the population. Um, they uh, are in the news. Every time the news is on, they're you know polite enough to mention the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their own Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, uh, even though it appears to be almost all white reporters and uh, people running the station, mm-hmm. but news ca- commentators. Um, but uh, there's just a weird thing that goes on up there, and, and I, I said I, I liken it like this. Um, in the U.S., uh, indigenous people are only like 2.3% of the population or thereabouts, and, and no one even knows we're here. So it's sort of like the, the, uh, the white folks are in the big house, right? And, um, and then, you know, the uh, black folks and Asian folks are there with them, and then uh, some of the Latinos are coming through the door, right? So, uh, but the native people, we're out on the lawn and they forget we're there. You know, every once in a while somebody says, oh, look, it looks like a native person out there, you know. But in Canada, they're in the room with them, mm. but they treat them just like they're not really there. So they're, they're, they're cordial and they're polite, and, but they basically placate them and, and pacify them. Very paternalistic system. And so I was really 
bothered by that. I was, uh, and I, I thought, is it worse to be like not even thought of, or is it worse to be in the room and not thought of? So, and you ran this theory past some of the leaders up there, and they they confirmed. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah. My my friend said they just pacify us basically. Yeah. So, um, and it, but but both are dehumanizing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the point. Is both are based on a white supremacist worldview, mm-hmm. and uh, both are dehumanizing to the point where um, you can basically treat them politely, or you can just you know treat them terribly, or or you can not acknowledge them at all. But it's still the same white supremacy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you told me that story, the reason it really caught my attention is, you know, I'm a dual citizen with Canada. And in the mornings, uh, while I'm brewing my coffee in the morning, I listen to a podcast. It's a 10-minute news from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, Mm -hmm. uh, the CBC News every morning. And I'm always struck with how prevalent First Nations stories are. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we we have to, like, blow up half the planet to be recognized (laughs) and, you know... The uh, Dakota Access Pipeline wasn't yeah. popular yeah. until it really caught on uh, social media. And then finally, finally, after a long time of suffering and yeah. saying, is anybody going to cover this? A few stations like Democracy Now! and Lawrence O'Donnell from MSNBC, they came out and mm. kind of got it a little bit popularized. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and I, after you told me this, this observation, I actually thought back to um, recently... The uh, Winter Olympics were up in Canada, and I remember that opening ceremony in right. Vancouver, and there were indigenous dancers from various First Nations there. And I remember thinking how cool it was to have that prominent place, mm-hmm. and then it was only the next day that I heard the other side of that kind of media attention, which is like, yeah, we want you for your color and your... Uh, the novelty of the the dance and the the ceremony and the celebration, but if you don't have equality and and access to influence and power to determine the future direction for policy, then it really is just a show, and in, in a sense, it's actually a little bit insulting. Yeah, well, it's it's a form of tokenism. Yeah, it's working. For the man, and you know, and by man I mean white man. Um, so if uh, you're working for the man, uh, you know, you uh, can expect that kind of treatment, and that's the system as it's set up. Mm-hmm. And the only way to uh, to change that is to basically change the system. Mm. So. Well, I was uh, I was up in Montana. I had a very different experience, which is that I got to interact with um, some more of my conservative or, or, but it's always good to go back and have conversations with people that I have known for nearly 30 years. And uh, because there's a long track record Mm -hmm. there. And so to compare notes with them, even though I know that we see things very differently, Mm -hmm. we have different uh, political allegiances that we have different visions for uh, the society it's always good to trade notes with people that you have walked with for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was last there almost two years ago. Um, and you know, a lot has happened in these last two years, especially in, um, politics. So it was very interesting to hear their reflection, mm-hmm. you know, cause they live in a part of the country that is, you know, well, it's, it's make America great again country. Yeah. And I live over here in, except for the governor, right? Yeah, no, I, I mean, Montana's a really interesting place. Yeah, they yeah. have the governor. But, yeah, I like the governor in Montana. Okay. But, you know, I live over here where, um, I mean, the honest truth is almost all of my networks locally mm-hmm. are you know, pie in the sky, 
like uh, the Democratic Party might be a nice starting point, but you know whether you're feeling the burn or you're dreaming of you know a democratic socialist mm-hmm. uh, future, you know Portlandia yeah. you know, has its own vibe. So it's good for me to go and hang out in different parts of the country and hear different perspectives. So it was eye opening. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And then um, you went down to the the desert southwest. Yeah, I went to New Mexico, and oh my god, I love New Mexico. New Mexico is a great place. Um, it's like uh, you know, we we had to go through Idaho and Utah to get there, okay. which are like the whitest states on earth. <laughs> um, and we got yeah. to New Mexico, yeah. and it was like you know, mostly brown people, and you know, we were in Walmart, and my. My son's like, Dad, I, you know, this is so cool. It's like, you know, there's hardly any white people in here at all, and they're all brown. And he says, but I can't tell who's Mexican and who's native. You know? uh, so, um, but we were, uh, and, and why is that important? Well, it's important if you live in somewhere like Oregon yeah. to, to all of a sudden feel differently about your surroundings, right, that what's normal and what's not. Mm. So um, uh, we were uh, invited by our friends Larry and Deborah Littlebird to go to the Santa Domingo Pueblo Feast Day. Oh, my gosh. This is the most incredible, uh, astonishing, uh, magnificent thing I think we've ever done. And in, 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 in we've been, you know, in Indian country most of our lives sort of like traveling, right? So we've been everywhere and done a lot, but... But we went to a feast day, and that Santa Domingo is the largest one of all the 19 pueblos. And uh, the house we were sitting in watching it on the porch was 800 years old, oh my. Uh, adobe place. And and there were li- literally thousands, and I'm talking about several thousand dancers out there. And they're, you know, uh, dancing basically for peace, but dancing for you know, wholeness and, uh, you know, uh, the earth and rain and all those kinds of things. For all good blessings, what we would say the harmony way, you know, and and um, uh, and then afterwards, the every person in the village makes their best food and invites all the strangers. And I'm talking about thousands of people, oh thousands and thousands. I mean, the car line to get in is like you know probably at least five six miles long. Wow. And that was at four o'clock when we left. We got there at eight in the morning, um, and and didn't have to wait too long. But uh, some of the best food, you know, you'll ever eat and the <laughs> nicest people. Wow. Oh, my gosh. It, it was just the, 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 the best happening we'd been a part of in years and years. Mm. So, so that was the sort of the vacation oh, day for that's us. That's great. Yeah. Well, that sounds wonderful. We wanted to apologize for not putting out an episode of Piecing It All Together last week when Randy got back from... Um, New Mexico, and I had gotten back from Montana. We had intended to record then, but my wife—we uh, actually came home early because my wife was sick, and then we had—we didn't get together. So we apologize for the delay, and we just want uh, you to know that we do plan on putting out at least one episode per week. So we apologize that we did not do that last week. And yeah, yeah, and and prayers and thoughts for uh, CJ. Right? Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. She is on the mend. Um, Randy, I wanted to run a theory past you. In episode 10, or our last episode, we left off by saying, if you are watching the news, make sure to pull back the curtain and ask questions about race and place and see if the story, the fruit that you're seeing is rooted somewhere else mm-hmm. and if that informs it. And so I've been thinking a lot as I've been traveling about um, 
doing another layer of that about looking behind the scenes to see if there's more going on behind the scenes than initially presents itself. And I have a theory that I want to run past you. Okay. Sounds good. You're Let's up for do it. it. All right. See if I'm smart enough to keep up with it. <laughs> when, well, I got most of it from you. I just added, I added one uh, twist at the end. So one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the arguments that I hear or the crises uh, that I see going on that people are really wrestling with, they get fixated on one element of it. So, for instance, with like our current president and being supported by 71 or 81 percent of white evangelicals, people who are not a part of that group cannot figure out how a group that is so claims to be so pro-family mm-hmm. uh, and so moral, mm-hmm. right, the, the religious right, how they can support a man who not only has this many divorces and this many known cases of adultery, but also just the, you know, the view and morality that he has claims he hasn't, doesn't need to be forgiven by God, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, people can't figure out why do the evangelicals support this guy, right? So that'd be like one example. Or another one would be like, if we say children are so important, why don't we fund education? Mm-hmm. Why are we making education cuts that are causing so many Oh, terrible side effects, right? So when you, but people focus on one element. And so I want to run this theory past you that to really understand something or to look at a, a bigger belief, like an ecosystem, mm-hmm. that what you want to do is find the overlap of three different elements. Ooh, okay. Okay. So the first is story or narrative. Yep. And the second is practices or actions. Yep. And then the last is um, relationships or community. And when you find the place where those three things meet, our, the stories we tell ourselves, what we do or our practices, and who we're connected to, it's where those three things come together. That's how you can figure out what somebody really believes or even what you really believe. And, and are you going to talk about why each of those is important? I'm hoping to. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. And then I thought we could um, just use some test cases, and I have some in mind, but you may uh, come up with others, of just trying to put myself in other people's shoes and say, I wonder why they value that, or I wonder how they made that decision, Hmm. or how could that thing come out of their mouth? And any time I'm trying to, that I'm surprised by something, that somebody invests money the way they do, or you know, spends time the way they do or stands with somebody in a relationship. And I'm surprised by it. I'm finding this to be a helpful, like a diagnostic tool to run it through this grid and see if anything helps me understand that person a little better. All right, let's get after it. So let's talk about uh, the stories that we tell ourselves. So narratives matter because they frame are the way we imagine the world and inspire our actions. Like the stories that we are told, whether it's the story of how America came to be or what makes America special in the world, mm-hmm. or uh, if you're, uh, our cultures, like how our cultures came to America or the role our cultures play right in the American story, or we could do it religiously. Mm-hmm. You can do it with your family. Like we all have family stories, whether it's about migrating or whether it's inheritance or legacy, the stories we tell ourselves are really important. Yeah. So tied in with narrative is yeah. what I would, is the worldview, right? Yeah. Because I think it's not that the narrative forms our worldview. It, it, 
solely, but it's that they feed each other. So worldviews are mostly caught. Um, it, nobody has to tell you what your worldview is. You catch it as you're growing mm-hmm. up in your environment mm-hmm. and stuff. And stories usually reinforce that worldview. But at the same time, stories also mold that worldview. So there's a, mm-hmm. uh, a back and forth, uh, you know, give and take relationship, a reciprocity, if you will, mm-hmm. of those um, uh, narrative and worldview that uh, that create, I think, what that first circle you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Definitely when we come to our, our test cases, I definitely want to circle back to that because those the way that those stories uh, reinforce us, but the fact that those stories come to us, they're given to us, mm-hmm. right? There's a gifted, they're gifted to us. And so we don't necessarily create our own stories, right? We're, we don't exist in a vacuum. Every one of us exists inside a story. Yeah, we find ourselves in those stories. Though, yeah. Right? And, yeah. And that's how we know what our stories are. We, we, yeah. we find the ones that resonate with us. Yeah. So the second element is these are practices or actions. And you have always been great at helping people see uh, how important it is, not just what you say, but what you do. That what you do and how you uh, practice is as important, maybe more important in some I, ways. I would say that, that belief... Uh, pales in comparison to action that, that belief really uh, I, I might give belief a five percent out of a hundred yeah. and actions 95 percent in terms wow. of what people understand their story to be and their purpose to be oh i'm glad i asked be, so. i didn't realize it was that big of a yeah that you've yeah that's really big disparity yeah, I, think, I think as i get older it, that that continues the needle continues to Keep going over to mm-hmm. the, the the what you do is who you are, mm-hmm. and the belief is just informs it a little bit. That's so interesting. You know, when I first met you, I was ninety five percent belief. Like you have to believe in Jesus and Scripture and this doctrine and right and like yes, you should probably do something with with that. So I would give that like five percent. Mm-hmm. And through our relationship and the, the different uh, ideas that you've introduced me to, and then as I've gone on my own journey, you know, I've probably come to like a 60-40, that it's 60% what you do and like 40% what you believe. Yeah. <laughs> so I think as I get older, I'm also moving in that direction. Yeah. Well, the, because the, the fallacy of belief is that, you know, and especially the Western uh, uh, world um, privileges what's written down. Mm-hmm. So like uh, uh, the Constitution, right? Mm. So that is our belief. And so we're supposed to act according to it, which as you can tell what's going on right now in government, mm. you, not, you don't have to act according to the Constitution, but you can still say you believe it. Mm. Uh, uh, the Bible is another one. It's a written document, but people find all kinds of reasons to justify you know, killing and um, mm. murder and oppression and all kinds of things from the scriptures, right? So um, it's about what they believe, and that ends up justifying what they do because they find a way to justify um, church membership, membership in clubs, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about, well, this is what our bylaws say. This is what, you know, we believe. And so, therefore, it's supposed to translate as what you do. But, mm. but what we've learned in time is that, and I think it's, it, this is a little deeper subject, but it's part of the, the whole Gnostic idea of the Western worldview that, you know, what you, what you think is who you are, you know, what mm-hmm. you believe is, mm-hmm. it will automatically translate. And it almost never, especially in religious people, it almost never translates into the kind of lifestyle mm. that uh, the religion tells you to, to live. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's an, it's amazing when you actually pull out examples, whether it's the constitution or scripture or something else. And you think like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize the role that that text was playing in, right. In, in my formation, that the, the influence that it's had on me. Yeah. So that's really eye opening. I think there is some influence, but mm-hmm. I'm not giving it a lot of credence. Okay. So then the third element is your relationships or your community. And what I'm coming to understand is that who you're connected to may be more influential on how you live and what you value and sort of the direction of your life and how you interact with the world and how you think about yourself hmm. than either story or practice. Yeah, unpack that a little bit because that's what I'm... So I'm, I'm figuring out figure that... Out. Um, that depending on whether it's your family of origin or your people group or your neighborhood or whatever it is, your group that you participate in, your fraternity, or that who you're connected to actually, in a sense, provides you a limited menu from which oh. you get to select. Okay. And that when I try and say to people, all right, so like I'm part of... A- I should say a congregation Mm -hmm. that is um, open and inclusive for LGBT folks. Mm -hmm. When I talk to more conservative people who are still trying to figure out like, yeah, but there are these six verses in the Bible. So therefore, you know, people can't be gay. Right. And blah, blah, blah. And I try and show them that those six verses don't necessarily have to be read the way that they're read. So I'm, I'm trying to open up a possibility for them to believe a certain way or live into a different story. But I'm figuring out that who they're connected to is more influential to them than any information. Okay. Yeah. Because they say, if I change my opinion on this, mm-hmm. I won't be welcome at my church anymore or my family will disown me or right. And so it's actually limiting in a sense what they can believe about an issue or the information that they're willing to engage, but it can all work the opposite way. It can be said in a positive sense that when you meet new folks Mm -hmm. and it can actually open up possibilities and you can say things like, I didn't even know I was allowed to think this way or believe this way. So I'm figuring out that relationships can be more influential than either narratives and beliefs or practices in determining how you live in the direction that your life goes. Yeah. Peer pressure. <laughs> Either positive or negative. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's my little tool that I've been okay. using. Pretty so cool. I want to yeah, give you like four, I want to give you four test cases and you might want to add okay, some. Okay, let's go over those one more time. It, it's your story. Yeah. It's your practices, practices or actions. And it's your relationships. Or your community. Okay. Yeah. So let's go. You just told us about this celebration, this festival that you had down at the Pueblo. So there's a story there, right? Like an old ancient story. Right. And that story is important because it frames and inspires action, right? But, you know, I don't have that story. So like um, you sometimes will tell stories about whether it's a turtle island or corn woman. You have stories that I don't have. Okay. And so uh, when I look at a thing like that, that feast, the, the festival that you're talking about, that's motivated. It's framed within a story 
that I don't haven't heard. I haven't heard that story, right? Mm-hmm. For that people. But there's also a practice that goes with it, which is not just a celebration, dancing uh, for peace and wholeness, but then also bringing your best food and feeding visitors. Yeah, incredible hospitality. (laughs) So that's a practice that's associated with, if it was just a story, it wouldn't, right? But it's when the, the practice comes in. And so when I look at how that community set that that day up Mm -hmm. it's motivated it's inspired by a story but there's a set of practices that give it real that transition it and give it real influence right Mm -hmm. for those who are there Mm -hmm. and what that does is in this third way it creates community or connection and relationships right so when i look at a people group or somebody who lives in a different part of the country and they have something like this that for me is I just I don't have any frame of reference for a celebration like that, either in my religious tradition or even in my family. We don't have anything like that. So when you, you told me about this thing, like my eyes just lit up like that sounds amazing. But it's so different than, you know, because it's not the same as going to a Fourth of July parade hmm. or having a Thanksgiving dinner at your own house. Well, and- yeah, part of the difference is that this whole thing is done for the benefit of everyone else. Right. Right? It's so powerful. Yeah. We, if you were going to try and understand somebody else's experience, you have to say, look, they are telling a story that I haven't heard yet. Mm-hmm. They have practices that I have not either participated in or I haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't done anything like that. And it's created community and connection for which I'm not a part so that's a very interesting thing to look at, uh, just a snapshot like that, and to realize how much is going on in any one day of celebration. Right. And, you know, uh, this doesn't add to your point, but just to give it a little more clarity, um, there are 19 pueblos in New Mexico, and each one holds at least one feast day a year. Oh, wow. Like that. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 And I think for some of us who maybe we've moved, you know, far from our family of origin or from the community we grew up in, and maybe we don't have communal celebrations like that. And so unfortunately, we go by the Hallmark holidays and the consumer holidays where, you know, it's like if it's on the calendar and you say, oh, what are you doing for Labor Day or what are you doing for the 4th, right? It's not the same. You're right. You know, I mean, that's the result of colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the result of the individualized Western worldview and yeah. the colonial uh, destruction of indigenous cultures. And rather than the Europeans coming in here and becoming a part of what most of our tribes had, some sort of uh, Thanksgiving ceremonies and celebrations, usually, you know, uh, dozens throughout the year, um, and becoming a part of those and a part of that community, instead mm-hmm. they... they you know, because of uh, this in, uh, inherent white supremacy, they felt like, you know, um, we have a better way of doing things and these people are less than us. And so let's do our own stuff and hadn't, mm-hmm. hadn't gotten us very far. Yeah. Okay. Second um, snapshot. Uh, I have some people in my life who are really into Second Amendment gun rights. Okay. So if you are listening to us and you are outside of the United States, this might seem 
I'm going to try not to do a caricature. I'm, I don't want people to sound like a cartoon. But if you're not familiar with Second Amendment gun rights folks, this may sound like I'm overdoing it, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm really trying not to. I'm going to try and faithfully represent them because this is right. This is a community I'm not a part of, but I hang out with a lot of them. Okay. So there's a story there. Part of the story is a Second Amendment that the the amendments of the Constitution gives us certain rights. Carry muskets, yeah. <laughs> I'm carrying muskets. By the way, have you ever shot a musket? No. Uh, so I've shot a muzzle loader. Okay. It takes forever yeah, to load a, that thing uh-huh. and then shoot it. And you have one round, uh-huh. very different type of gun. Anyway, that was the, the firearm of the Second Amendment. But okay. we've, we've advanced a little since then. So, um, at least our technology has. So, but there's a more to the story than that. The other story is we have to be armed to the teeth because if our government were to turn against the people or to turn against us, we need to be able to take on our government. So that's a story. It's not just about liberty, but there is a, a bigger story, right, that's being told about not trusting the authorities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. There's so much irony in this right now. It's uh... It's crazy. Yes. There's a reason you and I aren't a part of this community, but... Well, I I mean, I I have a concealed carry permit. Okay. You didn't know that? I didn't. No, I I have a concealed carry permit. This is something... Wow, you've really concealed that. (laughs) Nobody asked. Yeah, all right. uh, Yeah, and I, you know, I have guns, but I've also written many blogs, the Huffington Post and other places, and... Uh, chapters on peace and uh, anti-violence and things that to uh, uh, it's not the uh, having the gun that is the crime it's that how that gun is used and and also now what gun that is and uh, you know when they talk about Australia taking all your semi-automatics and trading them in for single shots and all that sort of thing I gladly do that yeah Um, I figure you know if you if you can't you know, shoot an animal in three or four tries, you shouldn't be out there hunting anyway. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I'm, uh, but you know, I mean, but, but the, but we've gone so far over to the other side, you know, we're stand your ground laws in Mm -hmm. Florida and all this crazy stuff of, you know, which becomes sometimes a license to shoot black people. Right. Um, and so, uh, as we've seen in Florida with Trayvon Martin, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm not an anti-gun person, okay. uh, so just so yeah. you know, I'm yeah. I may not be the liberal you think I am. <laughs> I've never classified myself as a liberal, by I, the way. I've never uh, accused you of that. Okay, I don't know if uh, anybody has, but uh, that's so that's helpful. And but it just reinforces there's definitely a story, right? Whatever it is, like even uh, I was going to live out in the country, and one of the concerns was the the family that I was going to live with said. Well, you know, the, the police don't come this far out, so we would have to have guns because, you know, when you live this far out, you kind of have to take care of yourself. If something were to happen, you need to be able to defend your property because you can't really count on the police. But that's a story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that story's influential. Okay. But there's also a set of practices. So whether it's target practice or reloading the ammo, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, ammo's gotten very expensive. I don't know if you know this. Ever since Obama was elected, the fear of the government taking people's uh, weapons has meant that people have stockpiled ammunition, and ammunition has gotten very expensive. And as metal 
the tariffs on metal has gone up, people are always talking about how expensive ammunition now is. Mm-hmm. So repacking the rounds uh, afterwards, reusing them, has become like an art. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and I had a friend who works at a gun shop, and every time there was a mass shooting with an AR-15, yes. the sales would just skyrocket for AR-15s. Something? Yeah. yeah. So there's a set of practices that go with that. But here's the other thing is it actually lends itself to the creation of a community and in a set of relationships that can become either a, a limiting factor mm-hmm. or open up new possibilities. So, for instance, I know a pastor who moved into an area where uh, this is a real issue and there's a whole gun culture. And because he would not participate in that gun culture, he was always seen as an outsider and didn't have real credibility in the in the community because he was always seen as like an, an outsider, that he wasn't part of that community, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a limiting factor. But it can also be, uh, in a different way, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was trying to figure out who was, they were going to vote for in these midterm elections, and there was this one candidate who they really wanted to vote for, but in the end they decided they couldn't because as much as they liked the policies on education and taxes and these other things... Uh, they were afraid that because he was not uh, really um, animate about defending the Second Amendment, that he may be susceptible to bring in policies that would open up the door for the government to come and take their guns. Right, and that's all you know. NRA, um, uh, you know, propaganda that was started. To- I understand, but what I'm saying is, when I look at, when I try and put myself in someone else's shoes, they said, "So you're not going to vote for this person." who on so many other things you believe in the direction that they want to take things. But you're in the end, you're not going to be connected to them because of this story and this set of practices. Mm -hmm. And it has actually closed down the relationship that they could have Mm -hmm. in so many other areas of their uh, community because of this one thing. And so I try and put myself in someone else's shoes and say, like, I can't believe how powerful this story is in shaping how you spend your morning, how you spend your week, how you spend your weekends. I can't believe how powerful that story is. Yeah, but no, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. Third test case, mm-hmm. Pentecostals. I get to hang out with a lot of Pentecostals, charismatic Christians. I'm not one. And I'm always fascinated with, A, the stories they tell themselves, mm-hmm. right, about either what's happening in the spiritual realm or what happens in different parts of the country or the world, I mean. Like in Africa, people are raised from the dead, but we don't see it here because, right? But there's a story. There's also a set of practices. So, like, to go to church on Sunday is to expect to encounter the living God through song. Mm-hmm. And so you get your whole body into it. Your hands are raised. You pour out your heart. But it actually starts changing the other practices. Like you can't have sin in your life because, you know, when you come before the Lord, you don't want to have anything between you and the Lord, right? So it actually is a call towards holiness. It's a really powerful set of, uh, well, potentially set of practices that actually changes like the way you make decisions about what you're going to drink or eat and how you're going to spend money and what kind of entertainment you're going to take in. It's amazing that, right. How different their experience is, but what it ends up doing is creating a different community where you can't be connected to 
um, people who don't live that way because it'll either hurt your faith or it'll take you down. You have to live into this kingdom mentality. And so you want to surround yourself with people who are going that same direction. And it's amazing how insulated the story, the practices, and then the community, how insulated that can become. It's almost like a bubble. Yep. It is a bubble. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So those are three things that I thought about. Okay. I don't know if you have anybody else whose shoes you try and put yourself in or understand their story and practice if anybody comes to mind. Well, I actually, the, the people I, I probably understand the least are liberals. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I find myself in the company of them all the time, but I don't find myself relating to them. Whoa. And um, I think they, uh, they tell themselves stories about mm. their beliefs as well. And in, in those beliefs, they see themselves as sort of the, the heroes, the mm-hmm. saviors, the, uh, who are on the right side of things, right? Um, just like the others, so the, the right does. Um, and, uh, and they're reinforced often by this bubble, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they show up on the, the uh, you know, often, especially in Portland, you know, you show up on the protest line, um, and that's your, your action, right? Or you sign... Mm-hmm petitions, you sign documents that will uh, reinforce those beliefs. So, um, so yeah, I'm, but I don't get it because, um, you know, I've found most liberals to be just as racist as most people, uh, most current conservatives that I've known. Um, it's just uh, racism in a different way because they think, oh, we don't, uh, we, we know about racism. We know about the systemic stuff, and so we're we're beyond that. We're a part. We're not a part of that anymore. And so, and yet their actions belie this this racism, right? Um, and so, I think what it's a little bit of denying their own humanity. Mm. And uh, like you know, I I love to have conversations with people. Sometimes I I enjoy being with conservatives sometimes more when they just say, well, you know, hey, I'm a racist. You know? <laughs> Uh, and, and the, but the people who, who don't admit, Hey, I'm, I'm human, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, this is, could be part of my MO, all that. Uh, you know, I have trouble understanding that cause they're not mm-hmm. being honest with themselves. So, so I like an honest That's conversation. So interesting. Yeah. I, and even though I would agree with many of the positions mm-hmm. like, uh, democratic socialism and things like that, you know, I, I do not see myself skinny jean, you know, blue hair yeah. Portlander, you know, that, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. So. That is awesome. And because I pastored a very liberal church, one of my favorite things is how, and we always have to confront this, is that we will, um, I always joke that liberals are in danger of giving themselves tennis elbow from patting themselves on the back all the time. It's like our number one injury is we're so damn proud of ourselves Mm -hmm. and how open-minded and accepting we are of everybody from every, you know, uh, tradition, every religion's great, every uh, sexual orientation, right? Everything, everyone's great. But it's still based on belief, right? Yeah. I mean, by and large, it's based on belief. Well, what I was going to say is where, so the story, that's a story they tell themselves. We're very open-minded. The practices are of protest and petition. Those are their practices. Mm -hmm. But where it becomes problematic is in the area of community or relationship. 
because it's amazing how open-minded we are towards everyone except those who aren't as open-minded as we are. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that piece that exposes, right? The fact that there's something wonky in this, in that when we have people who are more conservative than we are, that we, we almost don't even know how to talk to them. I don't know how to, I can't hear what you're saying. I don't want to be around you. I'm so, I'm in, I'm furious. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I have this friend, um, and I don't, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning this. Um, and, uh, uh, his name is Chris and I love to watch Chris around liberal people because, um, Chris is actually, uh, he's very quiet. He has a, uh, a very southern accent, um, and yet he's one of the most intelligent people I know. Thinks through everything, understands. He's got incredible wisdom. And uh, but when people, he doesn't say much. And then when he says something, it's with a southern accent, and he doesn't say too much. Then and immediately they think, oh, mm-hmm. southern accent, redneck. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, doesn't think through things, unintelligent. Yeah. And then when he finally might say something, I watch people's jaw drop, right? Mm. Um, and so those are kinds of test cases that I've watched that, yeah. uh, that make life interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listener, we would love to hear two things from you. One is a reflection on your own uh, overlap of your story, your practices, and your relationship or community, and how those three, where the, that spot where they overlap, what that tells you about your belief or, or who, what you really are living into. We would love to hear about your um, reflections on that personally. But we'd also be interested about uh, doing an experiment with you where we try and put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who we don't understand or whose story we haven't experienced. And we'd love to know who that is for you. Mm. So if you want to uh, reach out to us, we would love if you can post on Facebook, you can post on the website, piecing it all together, or you can send us an email at connect at piecing And so we would love if you would send that in and then we can do some reflection on that in a future episode. We want to thank those of you who have supported us on Patreon. Um, Please go to Patreon backslash piecing it all together. Make sure it's P-E-A-C, piecing it all together. And at the $1 level, at the $10 level, at the $20 level, we would really love if you would support this podcast as we open up the conversation. Yeah, and you know, I just want to put out an appeal because um, you know, we, we've sunk a lot of money into this stuff, and, and we're doing it because we want to open a conversation. We really are peacemakers. Uh, that's kind of how I understand my role on earth as part mm-hmm. of the, uh, bringing peace and harmony and trying to get people to listen to different viewpoints and listen to one another. And, um, you know, we need not only to, uh, to pay off some of the equipment we've purchased and things like that, but we also would just be so encouraged by your support to know, Hey, this is meaningful to you. And I've actually talked in the last couple of weeks, I've talked to several people who said, yeah, I want to start giving and I want to start giving and, uh, they haven't done it yet. So, um, you know, this is, um, uh, it, it's sort of like if you believe that it's worthwhile, support it. You know, support it a dollar a month. If you think it's worth a dollar a month, yeah. if you if you think it's worth ten dollars a month, do that. If you think it's worth twenty, or or write in the amount and do what you want to do. But you know, hey, uh, really would like your support and also those reviews. 
We want to reach a larger audience, and so we ask you to. And any kinds of uh, social media you can put us out on. You know, let's get this conversation opened up a whole lot wider. Thanks. That is all for us. This has been episode 11. We would love to get your feedback, and we will see you on episode 12 where we um, handle some feedback from listeners. I'm Randy Woodley. Bo Sanders. Peace out.